morning. Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are, are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here at Anchor Bay Church, and my cool Anchor Bay hoodie is still in the mail. So I had to wear a button-up, and I feel not as cool as everyone else, but I'm excited to be here with you, excited to be worshiping with you. It's a blessing to me uh, to preach and just to worship alongside you. Now, as we do each week before we begin, uh, I, let's take a moment real quick just to quiet our hearts before God. Uh, to set aside any distractions that we bring in here with us each week, and just to ask the Lord to speak to us and compel us today. And after a moment, I'll pray.
Lord, we love you and we are so thankful for this church, these people, and just the opportunity to worship and learn about you, Lord. Lord, you are always present, but I pray that you will move within us today in real, in real tangible ways that we can, we can feel you compelling us and moving us towards your love even more. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, I've talked about it a few times before uh, from up here, but I used to do quite a lot of theater back in the day. I did a lot of plays and musicals, lots of shows, and really liked it. Some of them stood out to me more than others, and one that has always stood out to me that I really liked being in was a play called Our Country's Good. And I think Gordon College actually recently did this show. It's a great show. Uh, Our Country's Good is set in 18th century Australia, which at the day was essentially a giant prison colony for the British Empire. And uh, the story follows around a group of prisoners that are living on this island, and they are tasked with putting on a play for the king, in honor of the king. And I always love a good play within a play story, and, uh, and so I really like this one. But the problem in the story was that the prisoners pretty obviously didn't want to do this, right? Like, why would they want to put on a play to honor someone who's sent them to an island prison for decades, right? Uh, as, as the show keeps moving along, though, the prisoners start to get more invested in the play. They start to really want to put it on. And we as the audience, we don't fully get it for a while. And the character that I played in this show was a man named John R. Scott. And John R. Scott, he was the toughest, meanest, angriest character in the play. I was obviously typecast. That is very much like me. But John hated everything except for the play. And about midway through the play, when a lot has been happening and there's debate on whether the prisoners want to do it anymore, John R. Scott gets up to say something, and that's when I had my big monologue. And monologues are very important to the flow or structure of a play or a story. A monologue is essentially a big speech that one character does. It's when dialogue and conversation and action pause for a moment and one person starts talking. And sometimes you have a couple of people that chime in with a sentence or a question. But for the most part, it's just one person talking for a while. Think of a Hamlet's to be or not to be monologue. Or Mufasa's look at the stars, Simba. They are the kings of the past monologue from Lion King. Monologues hit hit pause on the action and they draw the audience in. And often a monologue is then an insight into a character's heart or mind that we wouldn't necessarily get from what's been going on in the play. It's a deeper look at to themes or important events that we need our attention brought to more. And usually that's then done by a character standing up and saying it. And that's what happened in my monologue with John Arscott. He stands up and the scene pauses. And for a couple of minutes, it's just John talking. And he says that he loves being in the play because it allows him to escape the reality of his life that he's in. He's a prisoner on this colony. And when he's he's doing the play, he's not John R. Scott. He's the character. And he gets to escape and find purpose and reprieve. And so all of the sudden then, throughout the rest of the show after that, we start to see that that's what a lot of the characters are doing. And we start to see this really beautiful kind of fleshing out of people and characters and hearts as they get lost into another story. But we wouldn't have known any of that really. Or maybe we would have, it would have been hard to tell though without that monologue. That monologue helps us as the audience reshape how we're thinking about the characters and the show. 
because the monologue pauses the action, makes the story hit the brakes, and it makes the audience lean in and hear what the character is about to say and why they're about to say it. And in our passage today, we are moving from a lot of action to a monologue, a lot of things happening to us hearing Jesus talk for a while. And I think it's important. I think we should pause and lean in and hear what Jesus is about to say and why he's about to say it. So today, as we continue our sermon series, The Gospel of John King and Criminal, we have been walking through a lot of action throughout the Gospel of John. Over the past 13 chapters, Jesus and the disciples have been busy. They have been doing stuff nonstop. Jesus turned water into wine. He talked to a Samaritan woman at the well. He taught a confused Nicodemus. He healed a man who had been born blind. He fed thousands of people. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He's just been going, going, going. And even after Jesus goes away to be with his disciples and only his disciples at the beginning of chapter 13, he's still busy. He's washing their feet. He's teaching them. He's breaking bread and pouring wine all the way up to and through the passage that Pastor Bryn preached on last week when Jesus then predicts that Judas would betray him and Peter would deny him and everyone would turn from him and he would be arrested and killed. It's action, action, action. And then we get to chapter 14 and the action stops and Jesus starts his big monologue. In most modern printings of the Bible, anytime Jesus talks, it's printed in red letters. If you have your Bibles, just go ahead and flip through the next four chapters, 14 through 17, and look at how much red is on the, on the page. It's so much. I think I counted, I think there's only six verses over those entire four chapters that are not in red. Because for the next four chapters, all of the action pauses, and Jesus starts talking. A long monologue. And he starts it immediately after all of this action, immediately after he predicts his own betrayal and denial and death. And there's a lot in the passage that, that Amelia read for us a moment ago, right? And we won't be able to unpack every single detail in it, but just to be honest with you all, as I prayed and studied and prepared for this sermon, I really felt the Holy Spirit moving within me to talk about one particular part of this passage. I felt really compelled just to share with what the Lord's put on my heart, which I kind of feel like is what I should do as a preacher, right? And so we won't be able to talk about all of it, but I'm excited to talk about um, what the Lord's put on my heart. So let's go ahead and jump in. Jesus's big, long, four-chapter monologue opens up with Jesus telling his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Jesus opens by talking about preparing a place in his father's house for anyone who follows him. And there is plenty of room. And I'll be honest with you, this is, kind of, this is a wild passage. Jesus is talking about eternity. An eternity spent with him, eternity spent with God. And there are lots of interpretations about what eternity might actually look like, like in, in reality. Lots of interpretations and views and thoughts about it. And people really flesh this passage out down to every word that Jesus says. I mean, when I was reading some of the commentaries about this passage, one of the commentaries spent four pages just talking about the word rooms in this passage. I'm like, I couldn't write four pages on anything, let alone one, one word. 
there's so much to unpack here and there's a lot of different views on it. And that's not to say that it's not important, right? I'm glad they spent four pages talking about one word because it is important. And if you want to talk about what eternity looks like in reality, I'd be happy to grab coffee with you and talk about it sometime. We can talk about the different ideas and views and interpretations. There's a lot of cool stuff in the Bible about it and a lot of cool interpretations. But all of them, one way or the other, point towards us being reconciled to God and dwelling for eternity in the presence of God. And what I want to focus on today isn't what eternity looks like. Because I don't think that's what Jesus wanted his disciples to focus on in this passage. Or that's not what Jesus wanted disciples to land on. That's not the end. Instead, I want to focus on what happens after he says this. Because at the end of this big spiel about eternity and preparing a place for us, he says this last sentence. He looks around at his disciples and he says something that's just incredible. He says, you know the place, you know the way to the place where I'm going. You know the way. I don't know about you, but I feel like I would be a lot like Thomas in this situation. Thomas, one of Jesus' followers, he says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way, right? Thomas is like, Jesus, with all due respect, what are you talking about? I know the way, I don't know the way to be with God forever because I don't even know what that looks like. So how do I know the way? Thomas doesn't really even seem to touch on what eternity looks like because he has no idea what that place is. But instead, he says, listen, Jesus, it's great that we'll get to spend eternity with you in the Father's house, but how? And then Jesus says, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, Jesus says, I am the way. The, the way to this reconciled life is me. You know the way because you know who I am. You know what I've done. You've seen me reconcile people to me, to myself the whole way, preaching the truth of who I am through my actions. I am about redemption and reconciliation. So you want to spend eternity with the Father? It's through me. I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. When you put your faith in me, when you say yes to this new life that I invite you to, that is the way. All of the works that Jesus has done throughout his entire life point towards who Jesus is, and who Jesus is, is God. All the actions he's done, all the reconciling works, all the love he's poured out towards the, a point towards the character of God. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the one who will go to the cross and rise from the dead to defeat sin and death and shame once for all to bring you back to me. I am the one who shows you the truth of who God is. I am the one who gives you new life, abundant life. If you've seen me, the one who does all this, then you've seen the Father. If you really know me, then you know the Father. But for some reason, Philip, poor blessed Philip, he just doesn't get it. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And friends, this is the part of the passage that really moved me this week. This is the thing that I really felt the Spirit putting in my heart to talk about. Because at first I read this passage, I was like, Philip, my guy, what is going on? Did you not just hear Jesus say, if you know me, then you know my Father as well? But for some reason, Philip is struggling to understand. Philip is hearing everything that Jesus is saying, and he's like, wow, Jesus, that's great, and you're great. Thank you for opening the door to the Father for us, for inviting us into the Father's house. That's awesome. Now just real quick, can you show me the Father too? I want to know what God is like. For Philip, it seems like it's easy for him to see what Jesus did 
But Jesus did all those things to see what Jesus is like. But what about the Father? What is the Father like? And I think it compelled me so much. The thing that compelled me about this passage is that if I'm being really honest, I think it's really easy for me, and maybe for some of you as well, to look at Jesus and all that Jesus did, all the love that Jesus poured out, and to kind of disassociate that with God the Father. It's as if I know and I accept that Jesus is God, but I don't let myself see God the Father. God is a triune God as being as tender and kind as Jesus was and is. I think if we were to look at how we interact with God and God's truth, it would reveal a lot about how we picture God, how we pray and talk to God, the things that we say to God, and the things that we think we can't say to God, how we approach God with our sins and our failures, how we think God views us. How do we picture God? And how we picture God, it doesn't just affect how we interact with God ourselves, but it influences how we live in the world, right? How we picture God affects how we parent and how we lead or serve, how we talk to ourselves, how we talk to others. How we picture God affects how we extend mercy to others or forgiveness to others or how we don't. I think how we view God is, is our paradigm of how we see the world. If we see God as a harsh and impatient God, then our lives, how we treat others and ourselves, will start to reflect that. Is God a spiteful God or a mean God or a judgmental God? Or is God a compassionate God, a nurturing God, a patient God? And there could be a thousand reasons as to why we picture God the way that we picture God, right? Maybe we were part of a church where someone in authority or church leadership really hurt us, and it's just hard to differentiate between what they did and what they preached. And that's hard, and it's hard to trust God. Maybe a family member or a close friend, people who told you that they love you and that Jesus loves you, hurt you or manipulated you, and it's hard to disassociate those two kinds of love. Maybe you've heard sermons preached about things that are just counter to who God is, saying that God is a harsh or judgmental or angry God, that God was ready to condemn the world and punish the entire world before Jesus stepped in and God just punished him instead of us. And sometimes we just don't understand God because of all the chaos in the world, everything that's happening, what we've been taught, what we see on the news. Philip says, Jesus, it's so great that you're like that. But what about God? But Jesus says, Philip, how can you say that after being with me for so long? If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. And what incredible words. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Jesus tells Philip, you want to see what God is like? Well, take a look. Because here I am. Because friends, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus isn't just a doorway to God or a mode of transportation to God. Jesus is God. All the way at the beginning of the chapter, all the way at the beginning of the, the Gospel of John in chapter 1, when Jesus came into the earth to seek and to save the lost, chapter 1 says he did so as the one and only God, the physical incarnation of God in this world. 
the actual God stepped into this world. And when Jesus did step into this world, he did so as the image of the invisible God. Not as the likeness of the invisible God or emblematic of the invisible God, but as the perfect image of who God is. When we want to know what God is like, we can confidently look at Jesus Christ, who is the exact perfect representation of who God is. When we want to know what God looks like, when we want to know what the heart of God looks like, we look to Jesus because Jesus is God. Jesus tells Philip that everything Jesus himself had done up to this point and everything he will do after this point is the heart and the will of God. Jesus has demonstrated who God is through his actions and his words and his love. Or uh, to put it as Pastor Brian Zand puts it, Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God has to say to the world. And remember what a monologue is? Remember why monologues are important? In the midst of action and chaos and dialogue and stuff happening, they stop the action. They make the audience pause and lean in and listen closely because we're about to hear something important that is central to everything that's been happening. And I just find it so incredibly powerful that this is where Jesus chooses to stop the action and start his monologue. Right after Jesus tells Judas that he'll betray him, tells Peter that he'll deny him, tells all of his followers that they will abandon him and he will die. It's here that Jesus pauses the action and stands up for his monologue and says, you'll betray me, you'll deny me, I'll be abandoned. But don't be troubled. I'm still going to prepare a place for you. I'm still going to redeem you. Because I am God. And that's what God does. God is in the business of redemption. Even as he sat in the midst of his betrayers and deniers, he looked them in the eye. And he said, you're going to fail me and turn your back on me. But even still, I love you enough to go to the cross so that I can prepare a place for you once and for all where you can be with me. And this has been true of Jesus' entire life and ministry because I'm going to be totally honest with you right now. There isn't a single time in the entire Bible that someone comes to Jesus in their sin or their guilt or their shame and Jesus responds in anger. Not one time. Not even once. Jesus' anger is only ever directed at some of the religious officials and leaders when they use their position as God's leaders to elevate themselves, to profit themselves, to manipulate God's people. But when the hurting and the broken and the lost come to Jesus, he never responds in anger. He only responds in love. When prostitutes came up to Jesus, he loved them. When tax collectors and thieves and cheats came to Jesus, he loved them. When people came to Jesus who were confused or lost, they just didn't understand, Jesus loved them. Jesus lifted up the oppressed and the marginalized. He brought comfort to those who mourned. He encouraged the brokenhearted and stepped into their grief. He fed the hungry. He healed the desperate. And Jesus called them and calls us out of our sin and into new life. Of course, that is part of what it means to follow Jesus. But he doesn't do so out of anger. He does so out of love. What does God look like 
Jesus, show us God, show us the Father. That's what God looks like. And Jesus stops the action. The audience pauses and leans in to listen to what he has to say, and that's what Jesus says. He says, I am God, and I love you enough to do all of this. Hallelujah. Friends, that is who God is. God is a God who dramatically, intimately, and eternally loves us enough to come to earth and walk among us, to suffer like us, and to die for us, also that we can know God, know God's love, and dwell with God forever. God extends unbelievable, unmatched, unconditional love to anyone who comes to him. And when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, we want to know, we, we know what you've done and how you love us, but show us God, like show us what God is really like. Jesus says, you've seen the Father because you've seen me. All the works that I've done, all the people I've loved, all the people that I have healed, the people I've welcomed, that was the Father at work in me. Because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. My heart is the heart of God. Friends, if we want to see what God is like, if we want to know how God looks at us or thinks of us, if we want to know the true heart of God, we can look to Jesus and see his incredible heart for the lost and the wandering, the sinners and the sufferers, the hurt and the broken. We can approach God knowing that God embraces us with loving arms, open arms, endless love, calling us out of our sin and shame into new life with God. We can pray to God knowing that God hears us and cares about us and listens to us. And we can know that nothing ever can stand in the way of God's incredible love for us. So how do we see God? Right? I mean, if Jesus is the perfect representation of who God is, how do we get to know Jesus? Because when Philip asked to see the Father, see who God was, Jesus pointed Philip back to himself, back to Jesus. He showed Philip the Father through him. But we don't have the physical person of Jesus today. So if we want to see what God is like through Jesus, how do we do that? And this may seem like a pretty overly simple answer. You're like, Ethan, did you go to seminary just to learn to say that? But one way we can truly do that is through reading the Word. Because when we look at how the Word describes Jesus and the stories of Jesus that we find and the people that Jesus loved and listened to and spent time with, the things that Jesus was so passionate about, we start to see what Jesus was all about. We start to see his love for everyone. And sometimes it's hard to look at Scripture with a fresh eye, right? Especially when we're looking at passages or stories that we've read or heard a thousand times. You know, it's hard to look at it and try and get a new idea of who God might be. So sometimes when I'm reading a passage that I've heard a lot before, I start just by looking at what Jesus did. He turned water into wine. He talked to the Samaritan woman. He called Zacchaeus out of the tree. I just look at the actions of Jesus. And then I ask, who did Jesus do this to? Who are they? And why? Why is that important? Why does it matter? Because we'll start to see the heart of God through Jesus, through who he heals and talks to and welcomes and loves. We'll start to see how God operates. We'll start to know God's heart more. Or also just a very practical way that we can start to dive deeper into the word and understanding Jesus more. There's some really great study Bibles that are out there with commentaries and historical context and insight kind of paired up along the text. If you want to talk about some of those, I can talk to you about some that I've really enjoyed that have been meaningful to me. 
Um, but I think one way that we can really start to know who God is, is, who God is, who Jesus is, is by reading the word. And another way that we can know who God is is through each other, the body of Christ. Jesus says that the way others will know that we are followers of Jesus, the way that they'll be able to see Jesus through us is by our love. And I know that earlier we talked about, and it's a very real truth, that uh, there's hurt that has happened in the church. And while we are all part of the body of Christ, we are all also imperfect beings. But when the body of Christ is living its best life, we reflect Jesus. The early church was called Christians almost as like a, a cheeky little joke. It just means little Christs. And that sounds kind of silly to say, but like that's kind of what we're called to be. We are called to be little Christs. We're supposed to represent the heart of Christ. And when we do that, that's how people will know that we follow Christ by the way that we love them. So when we look at the church and we see how our siblings in Christ are living lives that line up with what we see Jesus doing in the Bible, we are seeing the heart of God through the actions of the church. One way that I saw this, uh, a few months ago, a dear friend of mine, Susan Morneau, who leads our prayer team ministry, uh, she asked me if we could put a slide up at the end of the service that will just show, uh, if you need prayer for anything, there's the prayer team available in the back. Pretty normal request, and I said, sure, of course. And then she said, I just want people to know that we're here for them. Like if someone needs prayer or just someone to talk with, I just want them to know that they have that in us. And that tenderness really moved me. Because it made me think, like, is that how I think of how I approach God? Do I, when I pray to God, do I see that tenderness and care? So eager to listen and love? It was really convicting to me because I realized I don't think that's how I approach God in prayer. But when I saw our prayer team doing that, when I saw Susan say that, it was so compelling to me. Man, that's the love of God lived out in action. That's how I see the heart of God through my siblings in Christ. And we see the heart of God when we make meal trains for people who have a baby or who get sick, or move to a new home, they feel overwhelmed. When we offer to give someone rides to church, just in case there's someone at the church that can't get a ride. When we're getting ready for a serve Sunday and where we go out into our community to love and serve our neighbors. And then I've had five of you come to me saying, hey, there's this organization or group of people that I think could really use the love of God, and I've got ideas for how we can serve them. That's incredible. Just seeing a group of people and wanting to love them. When we start to look around at the body of Christ and we see this outrageous love, that's how we start to see the heart of Christ. Here, even if Christ physically isn't with us, we see it through the body of Christ lived out. So friends, if you leave here remembering nothing else, just remember this, that God loves you so much. And when we come to God in our confusion or our guilt or our shame or our anger, God loves you. Full stop. Let's pray. Lord, I am humbled by your goodness to us and your love. Lord, please compel us and convict us in the ways that we are looking at you in ways that just aren't true. Help us, Lord, to see you for who you really are, which is a God full of love and compassion and grace. 
a God who came into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, as John 3, 17 says. Lord, we love you, and just move in our hearts this week. Reveal yourself to us in such true and intimate ways, Lord, that it, it will radically reshape how we think of you. Because you are a good God who loves us enough to come to the cross just to reconcile us back to you. We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.